is creation a viable model of origins in today's modern scientific era? And now let's welcome our debaters, Mr. Bill Nye and Mr. Ken Ham. February 2014, a highly anticipated debate at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. The amount of hullabaloo surrounding the event was, well, in a word, surprising. The moderator of the event was not just some guy with a stopwatch. No, it was CNN on-screen personality Tom Foreman, who makes it clear, by the way, that he flew in from New York, big-time New York, to Kentucky just for this. The Legacy Hall Auditorium is packed, about 900 people. Uh, on the other hand, it's estimated that there's three-quarters of a million people watching online. The subject? Is creation a viable model of origins in today's scientific era? Bill Nye looks dapper in his trademark bow tie and sport coat. The science guy. He's one of my childhood heroes. One of the very reasons that I am such a fan of science today. Uh, Ken Ham, he's a titan of Christian apologetics. He just looks the part. He's polished, bespectacled. In one of the lighter moments of the debate, he jokes that if it doesn't matter what he says, as long as he says it in his native Australian accent. Native Australian accent. For two and a half hours, the debate goes on, point, counterpoint, challenging each other to answer specific questions, then tap dancing around giving the answers. But if I'm being honest, it's surprisingly subdued, both men speaking eloquently, but in very measured tones. So like trial lawyers in a court procedural TV show, each of the debaters is given five minutes to open and then 30 minutes to present their evidence. As they each wind down their arguments, do they use the remainder of their time to summarize what they presented? Maybe toss in a, this is why I'm right. Or in Ken Ham's case, this is why I'm right. That's an awesome Australian accent there. Uh, but no, no, they don't. They do something else. They focus in on that other thing they've been talking about. It's not, is creation a viable model of origins in today's modern scientific era? No, it's not even close. Ken Ham spends several minutes at the end of his time setting aside the evidence and summing things up this way. Now, as soon as I say that, see, people say, see, if you allow creation in schools, for instance, if you allow students to even hear about it, ah, uh, this is religion. You know, let me illustrate this talking about uh, a recent battle in Texas over textbooks in the public school. A newspaper report said this, textbook and classroom curriculum battles have long ranged in Texas pitting creationists, those who see God's hand in the creation of the universe, against academics, stop right there. Notice, creationists, academics. Creationists can't be academics. Creationists can't be scientists. See, it's, it's the way things are worded out there. It, it, it's an indoctrination that's going on who worry about religious and political ideology trumping scientific fact. Wait a minute, what do they mean by science? You're talking about what you observe, or you're talking about your beliefs about the past? Perhaps that sets the tone for Bill Nye to respond by closing his final arguments out this way. Now, one last thing. You may not know that in the U.S. Constitution, from the Founding Fathers, is the sentence to promote the progress of science and useful arts. Kentucky voters. Voters who might be watching online in places like Texas, Tennessee, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, please, you don't want to raise a generation of science students who don't understand how we know our place in the cosmos, our place in space, who don't understand natural law. We need to innovate to keep the United States where it is in the world.
Thank you very much. There it is. This debate was never about the viability of the creation model. This is about something else entirely. Let me introduce myself. I'm Gabriel Creek, and this is Strange Bedfellows. Well, why Strange Bedfellows? Well, two reasons. First, I'm trying to launch a podcast, and in order for it to get any respect, I have to name it something mildly ironic and sufficiently edgy, without going overboard on either. I didn't make these rules. I just have to follow them. Number two. I'm exploring what happens when two seemingly oppositional things try to occupy the same space at the same time. For season one, I'm exploring what happens when the spiritual world and the physical world collide. Two different worlds that would seem to be at odds with each other. But are they? This debut episode, What Lives at the Intersection of Faith and Science. So let me start with my biases. I'll give you a little bit of a picture of where I'm coming from. I am a Christian, so when I talk about faith, it's going to be almost entirely from that perspective. I love Bill Nye. He's forever in my mind going to be the science guy. He opened up my mind and heart to science, and I think I'll forever be grateful for that. Um, That being said, I am a fan of science, but I would definitely not describe myself as a scientist. Now, I'm telling you all this because it informs my thoughts and feelings on the rest of what the podcast will entail. So let's jump back in. The closing statements by Bill Nye and Ken Ham echo conversations that I've had in my own experiences. I've had more than a few conversations that, well, when the topic turned to more spiritual direction, got uncomfortable. This is usually when my conversation partner's response is that they are a scientist or that they believe in science. I've been told that religion is the province of weaker minds attempting to explain the unexplainable. These statements are not intended to promote a conversation. Quite the opposite. This is my cue to shut my mouth. Faith is not welcome here. Those scientists, what an unreasonable bunch. Except not. They're very reasonable, perhaps to a fault. If you look up the word science in the dictionary, you get the following. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. So right away, science is all about studying the physical and natural world it leaves very little room for the spiritual. Faith, as it applies to religion, or in my case, Christianity specifically, already seems incompatible and a bad neighbor to science. But hold on, it gets worse. See, people have always had a knack for observing and learning from the world around them. Early on, we figured out that if you ate certain plants, you got sick. But if you got sick and ate certain plants, you got better. We learned that mixing two different metals resulted in an alloy that was stronger than either metal by itself. We looked at the sky and noticed that some of the celestial bodies moved while some stayed in place. The early Greeks are credited with being the fathers of the modern scientific method. 
They excelled at taking knowledge and categorizing it, then building on it. If you look at their architecture and the fact that a lot of it is still standing today, you can see that their knowledge of science and engineering was second to none. They introduced people like Pythagoras, who tried to make sense of things mathematically, and who also became the nightmare of high school math students everywhere. But not just ancient Greece, India, China, the Middle East, all making advances in things like chemistry. They created gunpowder and soap. Around the 16th and 17th centuries, science really hit its stride, and that's when it started rubbing a well-established faith community the wrong way. At the time, the faith community had a firm hold on reason. It had interpreted things a certain way, and scientists were messing with that. In a lot of ways, the faith of the time was sort of like a box of Legos. There's a box. How do you get from the box to that amazingly accurate representation of Hogwarts? Or one of my personal favorites, the Voltron that can split into the five lions? It's a miracle. Only the mighty Lego God can do that. But then scientists opened the box and found the bricks. Suddenly it wasn't a box to Voltron, it was a box to bricks to Voltron. The great Lego God's miracle seemed a little smaller. Then the scientists noticed that the bricks were pre-designed to fit nicely together. Lego God got smaller again. Then scientists noticed that there were instructions inside the box. So now it's a box to ready-to-assemble bricks with step-by-step -step instructions to Hogwarts. You know, the more I think about it, Lego God doesn't really seem all that necessary anymore. And faith. Faith was not going to take being relegated to obsolescence sitting down. Faith was in power and had the authority to fight back. Among the more famous scientists that were ostracized or killed by the church are Copernicus, who proposed that geocentricity, the idea that the universe revolved around the earth, was wrong. Bruno, who proposed that the stars were just distant versions of the sun. Kepler, best known for his laws of planetary motion. Galileo, the father of astronomy and the scientific method. And Newton, who noticed that apples fell down. Yeah. Most of us have probably heard the stories. These are the founding fathers and heroes of science, and the faith community tried to keep them down. Mind you, in just about every one of these stories, there are some extenuating circumstances, but the fact remains, in the historical scientific record, faith? Face the bad guy here. So as science gained momentum, so too it gained in its well-deserved mistrust of the faith community. In the 17th century, scientific academies began to spring up, well, like churches. Churches of science. They tried to keep their science pure by cutting themselves off from less robust claims of human knowledge. That especially included the religious and political realms, which at the time were often one and the same. When the British Association for the Advancement of Science held its first meetings in the 1830s, clear lines of demarcation were drawn. Cambridge geologist Adam Sedgwick warns that, and I'm quoting here, if we transgress our proper boundaries, go into provinces not belonging to us, and open a door of communication with the dreary wild of politics, that instant will the foul demon of discord find his way into our Eden of philosophy. 
See, the sciences promised a paradise of consensus. Faith, infused with politics, was the very definition of the serpent. So now, if you fast forward to today, not a ton has changed. Not much has been done to heal the wounds, and science remains weary of the faith community. But the tables have turned a little bit, and science is not really afraid of faith anymore. The establishment is no longer so heavily skewed in favor of the faith practitioners. A few years ago, there was a battle in the courts about whether intelligent design belongs in school textbooks. It didn't go well for the intelligent design advocates. In fact, science has become so mainstream that it's comfortable with openly mocking faith. It takes the Jesus fish, a symbol of faith, and turns it into the Darwin fish. And I'm going to give credit where credit's due here. That one still makes me smile. I, I give it points for creativity. But it also takes internet memes depicting a frightened young boy clinging to a cross with the caption, when Christians are presented with science. It puts Bill Nye up not to debate the creation model so much as to try to convince future generations that science is good and faith is bad. But, and now mind you, this is purely my opinion here, the rivalry, and yes, I said rivalry, but that's an understatement. This is more on par with a feud on the level of the Hatfields and McCoys, a deadly backwater brawl escalating out of control over who gets to control the local moonshine market. But I digress. The rivalry has never really been rooted in a fundamental incompatibility between the two. This all stems from the fact that faith and science, they speak different languages. Hey, you guys hungry? You want some lunch? Yeah. How about some peanut butter and jelly? That sounds like a great idea. All right, here's the peanut butter. Who's going to start? Uh, I will. Okay. On your slice of bread. Here. Twirl it in. Is this good? Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Spread that around on your bread. It's creamy. It is creamy. That's the best. <laughs> Do the I sound would effects say gross. I would say gross if this wasn't delicious. Let's get a little bit more. Peanut butter and jelly. If there's any more famous sandwich, I don't know what it is. Creamy rich peanut butter spread generously on one slice of bread. And of course, there's some people that prefer the texture of crunchy peanut butter. But those people are also wrong. Anyway, then there's the sweet nectar that goes onto the other slice of bread fruity goodness that has been processed and sugared until it no longer possesses any of its original health or nutritional value. Now, you can hold it up to the light and strawberries, cherries, and grapes have more sparkle than precious gemstones. So then you take these two highly decorated slices of bread and press them together. And in that moment, magic happens. You create an American icon. Statistically speaking, the average person will create this icon about 1,500 times before they've graduated high school. 1,500. So let's see, doing some quick math here. One 15-ounce jar of peanut butter makes about 15 sandwiches. So that's 1,000 jars of peanut butter, or about 675,000 peanuts. That's a lot. 18 years and just shy of 700,000 peanuts worth of experience. Bill Nye is probably an expert in the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Ken Ham, uh, he's Australian, so he's probably better versed in Vegemite. But let's just assume that he's also an expert in peanut butter. 
Now imagine, instead of debating creation, they're both debating the famed peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Based on the creation debate, Bill Nye would be arguing that when you put peanut butter on one slice of bread and jelly on another slice of bread and press them together, it makes a sandwich. And if you wanted to get more specific, it makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And to deny that is both ignorant and irresponsible. And you know what? He'd be right. Ken Ham, on the other hand, would argue this. When you put peanut butter on one slice of bread, and then you put jelly on another slice of bread, and you press them together, it's delicious. Does using peanut butter require you to come to a consensus with your peers on the best way to mash peanuts? Is agreement on the way bread and jelly is made the only real path to inventing more and better peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Of course not. Ken would also be right. And herein lies the problem. Science and faith speak different languages. The words sound the same, I will admit, but they mean different things. Like if Bill Nye says he's going to take a little nappy, Americans think he's going to go have a little rest. But Ken Ham, who speaks fluent Australian, would assume that he was, for some reason, going to get a diaper. I know what you're thinking. Okay, Gabe, are you really trying to convince me that this multi-century battle is all just a misunderstanding? As an oversimplification? Yes. It happens a lot when people think they understand each other, but then it turns out that they're speaking completely different things. But how can a little miscommunication result in all this discord? Well, let me give you a couple of historical examples of people who thought they were speaking the same language and how that ended up in disaster. First example. Three, two, one... We have ignition and we have liftoff of NASA's Mars Climate Orbiter as we continue to explore the mysteries of the Red Planet. In the 1990s, NASA launched the Martian Climate Orbiter to study climates on Mars. As a part of the mission, it was supposed to deploy a lander with all manner of scientific instruments to measure the climate from the surface. After an almost nine-month journey to get there, the lander, it disintegrated on entry. What happened? NASA had run and rerun all the calculations. Everything was perfect. Not everything. The orbiter team had done all their calculations in metric. The lander team assumed the calculations were in Imperial. So after having traveled over 130 million miles to get to our closest neighbor, the orbiter was about 100 miles closer to Mars than the lander team expected. Disaster. They were all speaking the same words. They were both speaking different languages. Or how about this one? In 1952, Derek Bentley and Christopher Craig were caught red-handed robbing the Barlow and Parker Confectionery Company. Confectionery, as in candy. Derek was 19 and Christopher was 16. A couple of kids robbing a candy store. This is a serious crime, sure, but they probably weren't looking at getting in too much trouble. But there was a problem. Christopher Craig was armed. When confronted by the police, he had drawn his gun. A police officer began to talk them down, finally convincing Derek to let cooler heads prevail. Derek, intending to tell his accomplice to hand his gun over to the policeman, said, Let him have it, Chris. Chris immediately opened fire, killing one of the policemen. 
Long story short, Derek was sentenced to life in prison while Chris received the death penalty. They were speaking the same words to each other, but they were clearly speaking different languages. The results? Disastrous. So where do we go from here? It's obvious that both sides are talking at each other rather than to each other. Faith definitely doesn't want to admit that it tried early on to bully the science community, while science is all too eager to remind us that they've flipped the tables. These are not conditions for reconciliation. But what can we do about that? Well, in the debate, one area that I felt Ken Ham was particularly successful was pointing out various people of faith who were also scientists. People who had made significant advances in the sciences, like Dr. Raymond Demadian, who invented the MRI, and Dr. Stuart Burgess, professor of engineering and design, who created a gear that made robotic arms on spacecraft possible. I remember one time when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 years old, that I saw my first metal arc. Now, I've always been curious about the natural world, but I didn't know how to categorize this bird. I took my best guess and I called it a yellow-breasted robin, which for a 10-year-old I think is, is pretty profound and good um, scientific reasoning, if you will. Yeah. I think when I was 10, I was saying, hey, that's a bird. Right, exactly. <laughs> which I guess, you know, scientifically speaking, that is, uh, that's, that's kind of trending the right direction because at least I didn't identify it as a turtle. Right, yes, yes, that is trending in the right direction. It just so happens that I have a friend who's literally a scientist. That's his profession. He also attends my church. So I thought I should talk with him. Now, he did request to remain anonymous just because he doesn't have the authority to speak on behalf of his company, which we're not really doing anyway. But, you know, what if this thing goes viral? We're just going to go ahead and play it safe. So instead of calling him by his name, we're going to give him a super cool spy nickname like Scorpio. So, this is my friend, Scorpio. I am a um, certified wildlife biologist, which means that I've met all the requirements by the National Wildlife Society. Whoa, what does a wildlife biologist do, especially a certified one? So, um, I've been working 19 years uh, in the public and private sectors um, as a consulting wildlife biologist. Whoa, that sounds really technical. <laughs> that uh, is, is definitely stepping outside of my realms of expertise. So, so do you like are are you out there like counting animals or something, or what? Do you, what do you actually? That's a good question. So, um, when uh, when there are new developments being proposed, um, I assess a given undeveloped property for its likelihood of having federal or state threatened endangered species at any time during a given year. Things like a new mine, housing development, wind farm, solar facility, oil and gas wells, new or widened highways, uh, new reservoirs, new ski areas or expanded ski areas, so that type of thing. So, and then. So, pretty much anything that involves a bulldozer. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so, after I assess, you know, what's out there before the bulldozer comes, um, then I'll say, well, okay, well, if you're going to scrape this, you know, like for a ski area, for instance, if you're going to, you know, cut runs in this area and then say it's lynx habitats, you know, then I would assess what type of impact it would have. And, and associate after that uh, habitat assessment, there's obviously various conversations that happen with the landowner, the developer, and 
whatever appropriate regulatory agency, whether it's local, county, state, or federal levels. Wow. I, I didn't even know that that was like a, a job, to be honest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed you say, hey, I want to put my shopping mall here, and then oh, no. just do it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. So, so you are like a, a legit scientist doing science-y things for your, your uh, bread and butter for all intents and purposes. Absolutely. Um, but so, but since I, I actually know you personally, and uh, I happen to know that you go to uh, my church and you attend my Bible study group, um, you are also a Christian. That is correct. Yep. Um, I became a Christian when I was in junior high. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, how would you say that being a Christian has influenced you as a scientist? When I went to college, I didn't really give it a second thought. Um, I've had various conversations with various classmates and scientists over, fun, over time. And I think the lesson that I've learned uh, being a Christian and a scientist, um, or being a, how a Christian has influenced me as a scientist is, you know, it, it doesn't really matter in the sense whether or not you believe in evolution or whatever topic you want to throw out there, dinosaurs or climate change or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about how well you do your job and, and how you treat your coworkers and whatnot. And so mm. you know, one approach you can take is, you know, just beating people on the head and saying, no, you know, Earth is exactly 6,000 years old and you're wrong and, and you better change your ways and be a Christian. But I think that is not going to, that's going to fall on deaf ears. And so I think um, being a Christian is just treating others uh, better than yourself, you know, whether, especially, I should say, if they disagree with you. Has there ever been a time where somebody else has found out about your faith and given you grief because of it? Um, not so much. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Once I applied for a job and my potential direct manager told me at the end of the interview that she didn't think that she could hire someone that didn't believe in evolution. And so after my jaw dropped, I said, okay, thanks for your time. And uh, they called me back a few days later and um, said, well, I think I could work with you, but I'm like, ah, I don't think this is going to work out. So I didn't that. So, yeah, I mean, so, and I think, you know. It only took I, a few days to really sort through those emotions to get to that. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, I think as a Christian bio, um, scientist, you always need to be prepared for an answer, uh, but to do it in a polite way, but mm -hmm. um, to expect the adversity. Let me ask this for the, the person that was not sure whether or not they wanted to hire you because you, you did not subscribe to their philosophies on evolution. Was that like necessary to do the job? No. I mean, I think, you know, it gets back to doing those habitat suitability assessments. If regardless or not, if you believe in God or evolution or dinosaurs or climate change, um, to some extent, you know, you have to have great workmanship and be able to identify plant and animal species and communicate clearly, whether it's written or email or in person. Um, and so there's nothing particularly about um, that philosophy that shows up in those um, yeah. types of scientific papers. Nice. Look at me go. 
all this conflict and I went unicorn hunting and bagged me one just to prove that science and religion can coexist. And the fact that I could do it so easily is an extra cause for celebration. I would totally high-five myself, except I can't because we're in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic and the CDC says I shouldn't high-five anybody. They recommend elbow bumps instead. Have you ever tried to elbow bump yourself? It's awkward. Or so I've heard. Not that I've tried. Anyway, back to discussing the rarity of scientific believers. With all those years of feuding and distrust between the two, theistic scientists must be in really short supply, right? Not so much, it turns out. In 2009, a Pew Research poll asked exactly that. The results of the poll did indeed suggest that scientists were nearly half as likely to believe in a god or higher power than the public at large in the U.S. But that still meant that 51% of scientists said that they believed in a higher power. Of those, nearly two-thirds of them believed specifically in the Christian god. But that was 11 years ago, and a lot can change. So more recently, mind you, this isn't science-specific. But I wanted to throw this in as just a self-indulgent moment to troll all the people who have ever told me that religion is for the uneducated and weaker minds to explain the unexplainable. In 2014, Examiner.com published an article about the religious beliefs of the people with the 10 highest IQs on the planet. Of those 10, 8 of them were theists. Of those 8, 6 were Christians. If those are uneducated, weak minds... I'd consider it an honor to be among them. But we're not talking about faith and smarts, though. So this is a little bit of a birdwalk. Let's get back to faith and science. In 2015, this is just five years ago now, Rice University released the results of their multinational poll. They polled almost 10,000 scientists in eight countries and then went and interviewed 600 of them more in depth. They made some interesting discoveries. Their study agreed with the 2009 poll that scientists were less likely to be religious than the public at large. But theistic scientists were still not rare. In fact, in Taiwan and Hong Kong, that wasn't true at all. There, you're more likely to be religious if you're a scientist. But the study at Rice asked another question, and this question is the shocker. This is the crux of the whole thing. Rice asked the scientists this. I'm quoting from the question now. For me personally, my understanding of science and religion is a relationship of... And then they were offered the following six choices. First one, conflict. I consider myself to be on the side of religion. Second one, conflict. I consider myself to be on the side of science. Third one, conflict. I'm not sure which side I'm on. Fourth one, independence. They refer to different aspects of reality. Fifth one, collaboration. Each can be used to help support the other. And finally, the sixth one, I don't know. Of all of the responses that involved conflict between faith and science, that's three out of the six possible answers, it worked out to be about 25% of the total responses. By a margin of three to one, scientists overwhelmingly agreed that science and religion are not in conflict. But there's more. While these polls are all about compiling data, the researchers noticed nuance in the answers provided by the scientists. Many suggested that faith can provide a check in more ethically gray areas. One biologist from the UK wrote, faith provides a check on those occasions where you might be tempted to shortcut because you want to get something published and you think, oh, 
That experiment wasn't really good enough, but if I portray it in this way, that will do. Elaine Eklund, the lead investigator in the Rice study, after all the results were in, concluded, and I'm quoting here, science is a global endeavor. And as long as science is global, then we need to recognize that the borders between science and religion are more permeable than most people think. So I hear all of this, and my mind goes back to the debate at the Creation Museum in 2014. Not the debate that happened, but that thinly veiled subtext that we've been talking about. The one where Ken Ham is saying, hey look, people of faith not only can, but are contributing to the sciences in a meaningful way. Bill Nye doesn't buy it. In fact, he outright cautions against it. But given that this debate is taking place at the exact same time that Elaine Eklund's study at Rice University is collecting their information, Bill Nye's belief that science and faith are incompatible? Well, the data doesn't really support it. Bill Nye is taking his position entirely on, dare I say it, faith. So the rivalry between faith and science is not really a rivalry at all. The rivalry, it turns out, is just the rest of us taking cues from a very vocal few out there on the fringes of the argument. Science has always been a part of faith. Faith has always been a part of science. Let me just ask you straight out, are science and faith incompatible? No, I don't believe so. No, I actually think that they are complementary. Mm. But what about all that persecution for the early scientists that I mentioned at the beginning? Let me remind you of what I actually said, and you can jump back there if you need to. What I said was there are extenuating circumstances. Galileo was well known not only for science, but also lampooning the Pope. Bruno, yes, he was a scientist, but he was also a very vocal opponent of the church. He slandered ministers. He called the tenets of the faith into question. So many of these scientists have similar stories. They picked a fight with the powerful establishment. The establishment, with its ownership of all the resources, fought back. Now, don't get me wrong. The church's reaction to them was way out of line and very heavy-handed. Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. I can't imagine any circumstances where that's the right choice. And I don't want to minimize or trivialize those atrocities. Most of the other scientists that I mentioned, in addition to paving the way for scientific advancement, also had complicated relationships with faith. A lot of them were believers themselves. Author Dr. Kelly James Clark, who's written many books and essays on this very subject, actually has this to say on the matter. Exclude God from the definition of science and, in one fell definitional swoop, you exclude the greatest natural philosophers of the so-called scientific revolution. Kepler, Copernicus, Galileo, Boyle, and Newton, to name just a few. And now, this is my turn to shine because I'm about to feel really sciencey examining all this data and creating a hypothesis. But here goes. Based on my research, the rivalry between science and faith is made up. It doesn't really exist. They're more like siblings who mostly get along just fine, but once in a while they get on each other's nerves. Science serves a purpose. Faith serves a purpose. And these purposes do not have to be at odds with one another. One of the smartest people I know said this, and it stuck with me. Science brings us things like antibiotics and appendectomies, and I'm for both of those things. That's a quote, as best I'm remembering it, from Dr. Ben Mandrell, 
He has a degree in biology. He's also one of my pastors. So I never got around to offering the definition of faith like I did for science. I can grab the dictionary definition, but I love this definition from the Bible in the book of Hebrews. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Substance, evidence. Huh, those are some of the same things science uses. That's weird. Science can figure out a lot, but it can't explain everything. It can determine whether we got here in seven days or billions of years. It can't figure out more philosophical things like morality, hate, love, heroism. What on earth would compel a person to risk their lives to save a group of strangers? I don't think it's science. I think it's safe to say that those things fall under the domain of faith. So if science is about learning, faith is about living. Those unseen but understood qualities that were alluded to by the respondents in the Rice survey can inform or inspire science. Where science is reason, faith can be the reason. Where science is logic, faith is passion. All of the important benefits of sleep and why you need it? Well, that's science. What gets you out of bed every morning? That's probably faith. Making kids, you know how that works. It's pure science. Trying to raise your kids right and maybe give them a better life than your own? That's the domain of faith. You need both. It starts with understanding that they aren't the same thing. Science is peanut butter, faith is jelly. Separately, they're good. Together, they're amazing.